0: Now, last week, we covered over 1,500 years of biblical history. Who who would have thought in a 40 minute sermon we could cover 1,500 years of biblical history? But starting with Adam, then to Seth, and all the way through to Noah, we covered these 1,500 years. Now, we saw throughout these years that the lives were unique, each speaking of an opportunity to serve the Creator God or to serve the wicked intentions of man's heart. However unique we might be, one truth was evident last week. Each of us that is here today is guaranteed two things, that we will live and that we will die. The curse of sin tarnishes us all, and therefore, without Jesus, our story, simply as we learned last week, is death. Yet with Jesus, we know that life goes beyond death. And dependent on our response to Jesus depends whether we will live with our God for eternity or we will live separated from God for eternity. Now, as we go into our text today, we learn that an entire generation has become wicked to their core. As God looks upon his creation, there is next to nothing that is good. You see, this is the issue with sin. Once it infects us, it will not settle. It grows and takes over all that is good. Now, as we're talking about wickedness and as we're going to be talking about sin today, I think it's really important that we define what wickedness and sin is before we see how it grows and how it infects all, and I think John Piper has famously preached a a fantastic little paragraph that helps us understand what sin is, and this is what Piper said. What is sin? It is the glory of God not honoured, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savoured, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. Folks, as we'll see in our text today, when sin takes hold, it needs an act of God to save us from this wickedness. I want you to keep this in mind. It is thanks to the grace of God that he would save us from such an evil heart. It is that grace in the person of Jesus Christ that we worship and we praise today. And we're going to delve into a fairly complex passage, and I hope we will see That indeed God is gracious towards us so let me read once again chapter 6 and verse 1 when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose Now, verse 1 acts as a summary verse of how humanity expanded. Remember, the people were to be obedient to the mandate of God in Genesis 1 to populate and enjoy all of creation. Now, it's interesting, in chapter 5 last week, we were concentrating on the firstborn sons, the line, the generational line of Seth. Yet here now in chapter 6, our focus has shifted to the daughters. Now we'll begin to understand that shift in verse 2, because we get a very strong hint that something is not quite right. There's a group of men, and we'll come on to this group in a moment, that find these daughters attractive. Now, there's nothing wrong in being attractive. But I want to be very clear, the idea of relational completeness that we found in Genesis 2 several weeks ago has entirely gone, and it's been replaced with lust and a desire to obtain and have whomever you want. Attractive wives are taking not because of love as the core emotion, but because of a burning desire to act upon their lustful wants. In Genesis 1 and 2, we learned how God created man and woman to complete one another, to complement one another, and to live as one flesh. But here in Genesis 6, the relationship between man and God, uh, sorry, man and woman, has now become about sexual desire and sexual conquest. Now, the degradation of God-honoring relationships is not really under question in this passage. It's a fact. You can't get away from it. It's It's not a debate. It's not a quandary. It is a fact. There is a degradation to God-honouring relationships. The major question though that we're asking and the significant debate that we find in these two verses comes when we try to define the sons of God and the daughters of man. What does each phrase refer to? Well, thinking caps on, as I said, it does get a bit complex. There are three main schools of thought. The first, and I think probably the most popular, is that the sons of God, Beni Elohim in the Hebrew, refer to angelic beings, specifically fallen angels, with the daughters of man referring simply to human woman. The main evidence used for such a theory is found in Job, Job chapter 1 and verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. We also have Job chapter 2 and verse 1, again there was a day, again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Now in both of these verses it is agreed that the sons of God refer to angels. Now if we use these verses as evidence then the first theory states that mortal women and immortal angels join together in marriage and procreate. They do so in complete disobedience to the boundaries that God has set. Because who was to join as one flesh? The blessed man and the blessed woman. Marriage and children were created by God's design for man and woman. Now, the issue with such a theory is the focus of the relationship. The focus on this relationship is about the flesh. Now, with such a focus, you have to assume certain things. Firstly, the angels can have sexual relationships and then secondly, that they can produce children. What I'm going to suggest is there's no real concrete evidence in scripture for such an assumption. I want you to consider Jude and verses six and seven. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, these two verses give us two facts. Yes, there is such a thing as fallen angels. And yes, there is such a thing as sexual immorality. But in Jude 6 and 7, these two things are not combined. Meaning that when we do join them in Genesis 6, it is by mere speculation. This speculation would have a disastrous outcome. For the opportunity of salvation, and I want you to note this, is only ever granted to mankind, not the fallen angels. Which leaves us with a question. If angels and mankind do indeed come together and angels and mankind do indeed produce children and only mankind get an option for salvation, well, would the children of such a union ever be saved from their sin? Because salvation was not something that was granted to the angels. Well, if our first theory has to have some assumptions to get us somewhere, can we get more concrete answers in our second theory? This states the sons of God is the generational line of Seth and the daughters of man refer to the generational line of Cain. In other words that we have a godly generation and an ungodly generation mixing together in marriage and procreation. Such a marriage would result in a decrease of godliness and an increase in wickedness and God warns against such intermarriage. Ezra 9.2, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Then we have 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So we're left with a few questions if we go for Seth and Cain's line as our theory. Are all in the line of Seth holy? Can all in the line of Seth be defined as sons of God? Are all the daughters of Cain evil? Can they all be written off as disobedient to God? With these questions, to honor such a theory, we have to assume once again, that the sons of God do not refer to an entire generational line But it refers to the fact that Christ would come from that line and therefore his holy presence would make that generational line pure. But once again, we're relying on an assumption to suggest such a few. Now, I wonder if our third theory will bring us anything without any assumptions. Well, the third theory states that the sons of God refer to kings who would terrorize women of the land to create a mighty dynasty. Now, there is a monumental problem with the third theory. There is zero context for kings in Genesis 6. It's as simple as that. We don't need to go further in the argument because there is no context for kings. So that leaves us with the sons of God either referring to angels or the line of Seth. Now, if I've entirely lost you, don't worry because I want you to see something. What I would say is that believing either theory means you have to make some assumptions, meaning you cannot hold your understanding with a firm grip. Rather, it has to be held in a loose hand. The important thing is to recognize this thing. Whether angels or the line of Seth, this intermarriage was not holy, and it only served to further the wickedness of mankind. So we're to keep our eyes on the issue rather than the debate. The issue is that sin is infecting every part of society. It has seized what was once a holy union, and it has destroyed it. I think we could go into great depths in this debate and to figure out what the answer might be. But I think the danger would be losing that fact, that the holy union of marriage is slowly being destroyed. So how does God respond? Verse 3. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Now we have another complex phrasing and outcome here in verse 3. What does my spirit refer to? For it can refer to the Holy Spirit, member of the triune God, or it can refer to the breath of God that sustains life. If it is the former, then the 120 years likely refers to the flood and the destruction of mankind. If it is the latter, then the 120 years likely refers to the lifespan of mankind, that they would not live beyond 120 years old. Either way, the sentiment is clear. Mankind was so evil, resisting the Spirit so consistently that it was futile for the Spirit to strive with them man had essentially become all flesh and no spirit in manner of living i want you to consider romans 5 8 for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit to live by the flesh is to reject the spirit Here in verse 3, God responds to such a rejection by means of judgment. He is no longer going to hold his judgment back. The people have 120 years and then the judgment would be given. Now, I personally believe this judgment would come in two forms. The flood that would destroy the world and that life would be curtailed on this earth. Now, I, I think this is an interesting side note. The current oldest person in the world is a Japanese man called Kane Tanaka, who is, and I want you to wait for it, 118 years old. The previous record was 250 years ago when the individual lived to 122 years old. So for the last couple of hundred years, no one has passed 120 years. Little interesting side note, isn't it? Of how God's judgment is clearly being pronounced. On mankind notice here that God still gives time though before the judgment comes and I'm personally always encouraged when God gives us time amen we're encouraged that God gives us time he gave time to Nineveh to repent from their sins he gave time to Judas didn't he do you want to go and do this go and do this he says to Judas he gave Adam time to confess his sin and now God gives everyone 120 years to repent from their ways. Of course, wickedness is so built in now that the offer is immediately rejected and therefore it becomes a promise of judgment. Yet God always gives time to repent. But there's also always a time when God turns his patience to judgment and we are not to test the patience of God. Let's keep moving into verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, when we refer to the Nephilim, we must remember that these are the children that came from the unholy marriages in verse 2. Goodness is not going to follow these individuals. The name Nephilim comes from the Hebrew word naphal, which can either mean those who are fallen or giants. They were mighty and they were wicked men. They were giants both in stature and in wickedness. They sought to make a name for themselves and they would do so by any means. Now I hope you're beginning to see the picture that's being built here. The world is being filled. The generations are growing and expanding. However, the expansion is not occurring due to God-honoring marriages, but because of disobedience and evil desires. Wickedness is increasing, and now we have an entire generation called the Nephilim who have no intention of following God. The picture-perfect creation that we saw in Genesis 1 is now utterly destroyed. And God says as much in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Wickedness is so intense on the earth that it is defined as constant. It now flows from the heart of every man to the point where their hearts are evil. And I want you to notice this word. They are evil continually. Think upon Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I was going to say that we're a long way from Kansas, but I felt like that was a uh, a little too much of a prod uh, personally as we head over to Kansas City, but we're a long way from Genesis 1, aren't we? We're a long way from Genesis 1. Temptation has given way to sin, sin has given way to wickedness, and now wickedness has given way to continual evil. And most striking is the reaction of God. I want you to know it's not written that he was angered or disappointed. But rather he was grieved and notice where the sorrow and the grief occurs in the heart of God the heart of man is evil continually and the heart of God is pained by what he sees do you remember the piper quote from the beginning of the sermon sin yes is doing wrong against one another but most importantly it is committing evil and wicked actions against god he does not respond indifferently rather our sin pains him and there's no greater example of this than christ on the cross do we think the cross of christ was a walk in the park do you think jesus endured such a cruel death without any form of suffering Do you think as they whipped him and beat him and speared him and put crowns of thorns on him and nailed him to a cross that he was just doing it indifferently sin pains god in ways that we can never truly comprehend verse 7 so the lord said i will blot out man whom i've created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for i am sorry that I have made them. In God's own holiness he determined the judgment that needs to be placed on such wickedness for God had to end the evil before him because there's degrees of sin and there are degrees of punishment. God determined that the world must be cleansed and to do so he must destroy it. Evil had got to such a level that the only way to see any good in the land was to wipe it out and to start again. And I don't want you to underestimate the devastation of this. Now, it was funny when I was typing this sermon, I was reminded of a simple picture of children by the seaside painstakingly building a sandcastle. All well, the shells are placed on top, moats are created, maybe their names are written on it. And then the sea crashes in and utterly destroys it. There's nothing left, nothing to salvage, just carnage. God created perfection and it will soon sit in utter ruin. More than that, his people no longer looked to him. And so without intervention, evil was going to increase to a hideous level. And in the coming two weeks, we're gonna learn about that destruction, but for now, And this is a wonderful verse. We turn our attention to verse 8. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Utter devastation was promised for the world, but there is hope. Because Noah was just a man, he was just a sinner. But by the grace of God, he was made more. Uh, Think upon Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, notice this, where sin increases, where wickedness increases, where evil gets to such a hideous level, grace abounded all the more. As sin increased in the land, so God's grace increased even more. Not all was lost because through Noah, God was going to show his saving grace. And that is the beauty of the God that we follow. There is always hope in his name. There's always a route to salvation. There's always a plan to bring about peace. We just need to know where to look for it. And here's the wonderful and simple truth. Where do we look for it? We have hundreds and hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of God's words. And they all point to the same thing, the eternal peace that we find in Jesus Christ. Utter devastation can be around us, but when we look at God's words, the word that is true, that is perfect, that is without flaw, we see that there is hope. Now, if you've been around LBC for any length of time, you know that what comes next in this sermon is some form of application, The Bible is living and active. It's not a dusty old book telling us a story, but the very words of God that are given to us to transform our lives. So how does our text today transform our lives? How does it become a final authority in our hearts this week? How does the word of God that is true and perfect and without flaw transform the way we live when we have seven verses of wickedness and one verse of hope? Well, In a typical pastor's fashion, I have three points for you. The first one is this. Your sin grieves God. Your sin grieves God. Let me, for just a moment, speak to those who are Christians in the room and listening online for a moment. I think we sometimes forget the pain we cause God when we willfully sin. We often justify our thoughts and our actions. It was the heat of the moment. We're still learning. They deserve it. They treated me like this, so I'll treat them like that. And each of these phrases show not only our disregard for our sin, but our lack of understanding that our sin grieves God. As we act wickedly toward one another, God is watching and feels the pain to see his people treat each other in that way. Consider Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. We can therefore say the opposite. It is not good for us to sulk. It is not good for us to ignore one another. It is not good for us to treat each other unkindly it is not good for us to bristle in frustration and anger it is not good for us to hold on to wrongs and hurts and past issues because it is not good for us to harm one another because disunity grieves god now to those who are not christians this morning don't think that you can behave in whatever way you want And God will just balance out your good with your bad. God sees the wickedness of your hearts. And God knows when you're disobedient. You can't run from him and you can't hide from him. Sin puts you as an enemy of God until you wake up to that. You don't get verse 8. Until you wake up to your wickedness. You won't truly understand the hope that comes from Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You cannot live life indifferently because God doesn't respond indifferently. For those who are faithful to Christ Jesus, judgment seat of Christ is nothing to fear. For those who do not follow Christ Jesus, are you really ready to face the judgment seat of Christ? Well, my second point is there is hope. In our last verse today, we saw how the message didn't end with judgment and ended with just a note of hope by God's grace there would be a route to salvation by God's grace there would be a relenting of God's wrath and as I said earlier Billy Graham wrote for the believing the believer there is hope beyond the grave because Jesus Christ has opened the door to heaven for us by his death and resurrection do you see for those who place their faith in Jesus we need not fear judgment for Jesus has paid the price for our sin Jesus has taken our sin, past, present, and future, nailed it to the cross, taking the punishment we deserve for each of us, and as he died and then rose triumphantly, so we are dead in our sin, but in Christ rise triumphantly in victory. So there is hope, and that is our hope, that we have grieved God, but by his grace he responds with Jesus. What love of the Father to give yet another chance to repent from our sins and to be made righteous. As Spurgeon said, and I said earlier, without Christ there is no hope. Let me turn that phrase. There is hope with Christ. I wonder, do you look at this world and despair? I wonder, in the last two years, have you gone through stuff that really you don't even know how to put into words? A friend of mine is a pastor of a church in Lincolnshire. There's about 25 members in his church. There's now less than half of that as they all died from COVID. He is currently off sick from work and has no idea how to stand. He had to do 12 funerals in about two months. He loves the Lord Jesus. He knows there's hope, but he has mentally been affected by this. But he's not lost. I had an email from him just two days ago. In the quietness and in the stillness, he wrote, There is always hope. I wonder have you been through devastation? Do you need to be reminded that there is hope? Trust me, I hope you can trust me in this. You're not going to find it anywhere else. Everything else is going to fail you. The political party you voted for, how well are they doing right now? Your children that you believe in, that you spur on, how many times have they failed? Your own life, your dreams, your goals, your desires... How well are you doing with that? There is no lasting hope outside of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I finish with this final point, a word of warning. I think it's important that we see that Scripture is full of warnings. As much as there is hope in Christ, there's also a lot of warnings. God gave the people 120 years, yet they ignored it. They continued with their wickedness and continued to ignore the glory of God and what happened next was utter devastation. And the lesson is clear. Do not test the patience of God. Do not think you can just wait him out. It won't work. You will always end up facing the judgment of a most holy God. It's interesting, I don't know if I'm just nostalgic as we look to move, but last week I told a story and and this week I feel like I need to tell another story. Uh, many of you know that when growing up, my father was quite ill. He had uh, multiple heart attacks and uh, multiple issues in his life and, and died relatively young. He had a heart attack when I was two and afterwards he went straight back to the alcohol. He had another heart attack when I was two and afterwards he went straight back to the alcohol and he had a heart attack when I was six and he went straight back to the alcohol. That third heart attack ended his life twice and twice he was brought back to life by the doctors and he went back to the alcohol and he was testing God's patience. It took him another three years to realize that he was testing nearly too far. And praise God, he relented in his arrogance and he became faithful to Christ Jesus. For the Christians here today, I beg of you that you would live this moment as if it was your last. Do you really want to run the risk of going to see your maker while caught in sin? I beg of you, do not harbour anger, or hatred, or sexual immorality, or lies, or deceit. Do not test the patience of God. To the non-Christian here today, you may say, well, I've heard all this before, but tell me this, your choice is to be faithful to God. Or to test God. Just scan your eyes over the passage. Look at what testing God does. Judgment is coming. Which side are you going to be on? Eternally separated from God or enjoying the kingdom of God? I repeat, do not test God's patience. Resolve today to be at peace with God. So like Noah, you would find favor with God. Only you can decide that. No one can decide it for you. And so I leave that life-altering decision for you to make today as we close in prayer. Father, we are sorry that we grieve you with our sin. father we are sorry for our arrogance and our ignorance that we continue to live in sinful ways father lincoln baptist church is no different from any other church we are full of sinners gracefully saved by you but we often give in to temptation we backbite we mean ill towards one another We grumble, we kick and scream, and all the while we forget that we grieve you with that behavior. Father, I pray that you would transform our hearts and our minds. Father, we learned that as Eve took of the fruit and as Adam willfully sinned, not a moment did they pause to think. Father, we pray that we would pause to think to think upon the cross of Christ and what the backbiting felt like as it was nailed into the feet of Jesus. What the grumble felt like on the whips of the back of Jesus. What the self-seeking ego agendas did as they were nailed into his hands. Father, let us never forget the grief that our sin caused. Yet let us never, ever, ever forget the hope that is in Christ Jesus taking each one. For in Christ Jesus, we see that there is a plan for salvation, a plan for peace. And Father, we pray that we would live by that plan. We would live by that hope. Father, you know that in my years here, I've used the phrase, all for Jesus. Why? Because it's all because of Jesus. Because of his love, his mercy, his grace, we have hope. And so, Father, on a day like this, as we remember, as we ponder, as we think, let our eyes be fixed on Jesus. I pray this in your glorious name. Amen.